for some of you, it might be somewhat boring. For others, it might be interesting. Um, but I think what we try to do in, with this first presentation is really to provide you with a broad overview um, and especially address questions such as why and how to compare and what to compare. Um, ideally, and my friends in this department always tell me that, you know, ideally you would have to have an experiment, right, in order to establish any causal relationships such as a randomized controlled trial. Um, you know, and as we know, RCTs involve the random allocation of different interventions to subjects. Given that the number of subjects are sufficient, randomization is an effective method to identify the causal effects of interventions. Now, um, one might argue that this kind of approach is quite limited if you are interested in macro-social units. Now, I think we have about, let's say, something like 200 nation-states uh, out there, randomization of 200 nation-states and with you know, interventions and controls. And um, it's quite impossible, especially if we assume that these are democracies. Um, so it is impossible to some extent to imagine such an approach, especially at a large scale of randomization. Hence, um, you know, some people say that um, comparisons can be understood as um, quasi-experiments um, to some extent um, that um, we can address um, as we cannot manipulate the conditions affecting large masses of people. So, as I said, comparative research as a quasi-experiment. Now, if we look at the typology of scientific methods, I think the first thing really is that we need to differentiate between the experimental method and the non-experimental method. And this is based on the seminal work of Leiphardt. Um, then going on, we can dis differentiate between the statistical method, the comparative method, and the case study method. If we look at the comparative method, um, which is much more focused on a limited number of countries, and I'll get to that in a minute, um, our main aim is in order to have, can be able to draw any generalizations, um, is one option would be to maximize the end, which then brings us closely to the statistical method. And for the sociologists among you, if you think about 13 OECD countries, and, you know, even if we assume we have really comparable data, to use the statistical method in terms of uh, regression analysis, there might be some limits. The other one would be the so-called comparable cases strategy, which is kind of a two, three country design or, or, you know, small, really small in design. Now... If we look at the definitions, and um, Linda Huntry, who has written an introduction into um, international comparative social research, she writes that, and I quote, in the social sciences and humanities, comparative research is the term widely employed to describe studies of societies, countries, cultures, systems, institutions, social structures, and change over time and space when they are carried out with the intention of using the same research tools to compare systematically the manifestations of phenomena in more than one temporal or spatial social 
cultural setting. So I think what is important to understand, I think, is that the comparative method or comparative approach, comparative research, entails two elements, comparison over time and over space. Um, and what is also especially, um, I think, among those who use qualitative analysis, often forgotten is that they need to compare systematically, right? So ask the same questions, um, employ more or less perhaps the same methods, although as we will show in um, our subsequent uh, presentations, um, there might be issues with that as well. But it should be systematic. We don't want to have, you know, just stories of individual countries. Now, according to Charles Ragan, a political scientist, um, comparators are interested in identifying the similarities and differences among macro-social units, enabling them to understand, explain, and interpret outcome and processes. So it's macro-social units. It's kind of the political science approach. We're looking at nation states most of the time. But what is really also important and needs to be highlighted, and we very often forget that, and this is perhaps the case very often in quantitative analysis when we use variables, is that um, you know, we might, um, you know, comparative work is, or that some indicators and variables are culturally bound and that there can be misinterpretations, misunderstandings, or concept stretching. So does it really mean if we use the concept of unemployment in Western Europe, can that really be employed in places like um, rural uh, Rwanda? Just to pick one, it uh, has nothing to do with Rwanda, just you know, in a, in a setting where labor markets are less formalized, does it have the meaning? So if, for example, in some statistics, and this is, you know, I, I would encourage you, sometimes the ILO or other international organizations provide these statistics of unemployment in some places where you know that poverty is really high and formal employment is almost non-existent, but the unemployment rate is also almost non-existent. So what is the meaning of that unemployment rate? And we obviously could include it in our statistical analysis, as many of us probably do, but we should always be aware that there's the possibility or, you know, concept stretching. Now, if we look at um, kind of a matrix of comparative research design, and as I said, we can uh, differentiate between spatial and temporal variation. We can have, and I think this, um, this figure or this, this table by Gehring um, is quite good. We can have, you know, um, spatial as well as temporal um, variation. Then we can speak of a dynamic comparison. We can have no spatial but only temporal variation. That's the longitudinal comparison. Uh, we can have uh, basically um, no temporal but just spatial. That's, um, you know, quadrant three. And then the counterfactual, what would have happened um, if it were different? Um, I'm not so sure, um, you know, that... Um, many of us would use that, but um, it is out there as a counterfactual. Now, um, this can also be put into this typology of comparative research. So if we look at the number of cases, if we have one, we might have no spatial variation, um, but temporal variation. So that's single case diachronic analysis. 
one case within case analysis, single case study, synchronic. And then if we have, um, you know, um, temporal variation, a single case study, synchronic and diachronic. And you can read it yourself, and I think this really captures the various kind of possibilities for comparative research. Um, again, very often it is, uh, I think, or this approach, putting it in this kind of um, matrix is, um, you know, from a more or less political science perspective. So macro-social units, right? States. And, you know, for, as you will see, I mean, very often we, in the comparative welfare state or social policy analysis, we very often speak about states. And um, as we will see tomorrow, the micro element is really important as, um, you know, states perhaps don't matter that much as we often believe. So why and how do we compare? Why do we compare internationally? There are very different reasons. One, obviously, um, all of those who are just purely interested in academic life to test the newly constructed developed theories, right? That's why we compare. It's kind of this quasi-experimental kind of approach. Obviously, in, in order to be able to do that, um, we need to learn more about other countries per se. So to some extent, um, our comparisons can be purely descriptive, can be purely an endeavor to collect data. We might not be that happy and we're not, you know, because we're not explaining that, but that needs to be done and needs to be also understood as comparative research. And as we have, as, I, as we always knew, but especially in this project, as we have discovered and really been made aware of is kind of the statistics that all of us use, whether they are from the OECD, the EU, from colleagues of us who have established databases. The more you look into it, into those databases, the more scary it becomes of what these databases really reflect. So what I'm saying is that, and we have too few of them, literally, I think, of uh, really good databases. So I just want to highlight that this descriptive work establishing data is really, I think, something important for um, comparativists, which we don't do enough of. Then if we move more towards into the um, kind of um, policy mode, we can measure national policy performance, especially as it's done in the um, EU with the... Off, uh, um, the, the, the the kind of benchmarking that we have um, and which can be used for baselines for national policy analysis, such as in the open method of coordination. Um, now, um, and this reflects or connects to some extent to what I've said earlier, what and how to compare. What is the dependent variable? What are we trying to explain? Are we trying to explain policy outputs? Right? So certain kind of, let's say, disability policies, you know, which are designed in a certain way. Or, so at the macro, again, it would be a macro social unit or would be at the macro level. Or are we interested really in the policy outcomes, the micro level, individuals in nation states and how they differ? If we look at most of the regime literature, and at welfare state research, most of it is really related to policy outputs, right? Everyone assumes 
you know, or for a long time, and I get into that in, uh, later on, if you spend more, you have a better welfare state. But, you know, whether this is the case or not, I mean, just to take it, you know, ready to mention right now, currently, I think, according to OECD statistics, uh, the French spent the most, not the Swedes. So, uh, but if I talk to my French colleagues, they now say, obviously, that the Swedes still have a better welfare state, a more comprehensive welfare state than them. But this just, you know, um, to some extent, um, reflects or symbolizes it. Now, within comparative research, there's this huge, um, you know, divide, split in the community between those using quantitative, often large N, and those using qualitative methods. Um, and this, to some extent, re is reflected uh, through various different epistemologies. One is kind of which I, you know, and some of my, you know, more quantitative-oriented colleagues might not like it. It's kind of what I would call positivism. So there are universalistic laws out there based on the ontological conviction that reality is an objective and singular. Is objective and singular. And if you look into the history of um, social sciences, you have Kant and Durkheim, and it's about explaining. And then you have the tradition of Max Weber, which is about the meaning, it's the understanding of um, an interpretation of relationships. So it's this constructivism. And to some extent, if you look at the quantitative, qualitative divide, it is really about this different approach, this, these different epistemologies. Recently, and I think... Um, this is, you know, it's a, it's a book by Sven Steinmo, an American political scientist. Um, the limits of comparative um, research, and here it's really the limits of, he highlights, of comparative political science. He says, quite simply, we increasingly have tried to understand the world as if it was made up of discrete, stable, and inter independent units or variables. When in reality, we know that human history is the product of complex, dynamic, and interdependent processes. Well, it sounds really common sense, right? But if we use some of our um, quantitative analysis, is it really that what we're looking into? Is it really, um, you know, do we really take account of that? And he questions that, that we take account of that. Um, especially in in political science, we have seen this revolution of quantitative studies using various political and socioeconomic indicators as independent variables and social spending as the dependent variable. And as I already said, you know, it's the question of, first of all, are these, um, is the meaning of these indicators, of the political and socioeconomic indicators, the same across countries? Um, and is social spending an appropriate one? Nevertheless, um, I think one needs to highlight the problem that the concepts, as I mentioned, are often contentious, thus leading to problems of measurability, reliability, and validity. But I think the most problematic thing is really to, that we have a small, the small end problem of only 18 OECD countries. And Garrett and Lang suggest to use pooled cross-sectional time series design in their regression analysis. However, the problem here is that these analysts really differentiate between overtime and cross-sectional effects. And it, this is really worked out by Michael Shalev, um, a sociologist in um, Jerusalem University, in this um, paper entitled Limits and Alternatives to Multiple Regression in Comparative Research. 
um, and he basically pleads for a more simplified uh, presentation of um, not only presentation but also analysis to some extent of these comparisons and we will go into that tomorrow. Manu will talk about that. Um, nevertheless, I think it needs to be highlighted that large N comparisons do have um, you know, um, advantages. That is, the adva you know, we can identify causal effects, we can really test theories, we can eliminate um, competing explanations and minimize selection bias, and the findings are usually or very often generalizable compared to small n studies. Disadvantages, causal relationship are probabilistic, difficulty to identify multiple conjunctural causality and causal pathways, as Charles Ragan would highlight. The comparability and reliability of data are often limited, as I already mentioned. And there's the assumption that indicators such as unemployment, part-time employment, and so forth, have the same meaning, represent the same variables, and are comparable across dissimilar social units over time and space. What I'm saying is that you know, there is great leverage in doing these analyses, but at the same time, we should be aware of limitations. And very often, it is my uh, true belief, is with these studies, are our methods, methodologies, more sophisticated than the data and the variables we have? Um, small end studies can provide us with a holistic perspective. They have the advantage of the identifying the importance of context and deal with multiple conjunctural causality, identify causal pathways, and can you know, help us in generating theories. The disadvantage, obviously, selection bias, many variables, small number of cases, mid-range theory, no generalizations. You know, one could also, you know, say it's just idiosyncratic storytelling, right? Um, and here we have the importance of increasing the number of observations to minimize measurement error. So basically observations um, in you know, the number of countries in the small in the small end cases design. And the ideal approach people would choose here is process tracing. I'll more to that in a minute. Now, random selection, that would be the best we could do in large end comparisons. But if we look at macro social units, we can't have that, right? We, you know, might include all OECD countries. Selection problem in small end comparisons, by definition, random selection is not practical or meaningful. So we can have the most different research design, the most similar research design. We can use qualitative comparative analysis, or we could use the crucial case design. Now, all this goes back to uh, John Stuart Mill, to the system of logic, and... Um, his method of agreement, and many people get that wrong, is the most different research design. Just to give you an example, select for, would be to argue that one selects comparative cases that are similar for the dependent variable, but are as different as possible on the independent variable. The independent variable they have in common is assumed to be the cause of the phenomenon. Right? So similar on the dependent variable, and um, 
the independent variable they have in common is assumed to be the cause. It's a very simplified world. Then, obviously, the um, Mill's method of difference or the most similar research design or what Leipzig would call comparable cases. Um, and in Mill's words, it's comparing instances in which a phenomenon does occur with instances in other respects similar in which it does not. So basically, this is select comparison cases that are different for the dependent outcome variable, but are as similar as possible on a number of independent variables. The independent variable absent in one of the cases are, is assumed to be um, the cause of the phenomenon. Um, but there are obviously critical issues. Number of observations, we would need to um, aim to increase the number of observations over time or by analyzing subunits within cases. But the most challenging critical issue here is, and you know, if we do paired comparisons, we very often have that, we have an oversimplification, right? In real life, a certain outcome is seldom caused by one independent variable. Furthermore, it is often a matter of a degree, that is, quantitative variations um, of the variables. <coughs> now, this leads to the fact of, or to the issue of multiple causality. And um, in crucial case design, we um, can take, to some extent, take account of that, but I will go into the multiple causality issue in a minute. Um, I just want to highlight at this stage that even a single case can contribute to comparative research. And that is the so-called crucial case, which has been highlighted by Eckstein some time ago. A crucial case can be defined as a case in which a theory is most likely to hold if it is valid anywhere, um, might be falsified. So it's the, also called the most likely case design. And for example, in some of my own research, if you look, we have looked at the German welfare state, which is kind of said to be the conservative welfare state, right? So if we are saying, you know, to have, and if you look at the regime literature, that it's, you know, it's ideal types, but Germany gets closest to this ideal type of a conservative one. If we can show that Germany is not a conservative welfare state anymore, you know, does the regime's theory, you know, does it still add something that can it still tell us something? So based on this crucial case, we would argue that to some extent um, the regime theory does not hold anymore. Obviously, um, this is informed by the single case and it is a comparison over time that we did with this, um, you know, looking at it up to the 1975-1980 as our reference point and then comparing um, the development sense with that. And at least based on that, we argue that um, you know, one could not speak of conservative welfare state anymore of this concept because this has changed dramatically. So that's the crucial case design that we um, employed here. Now, very often, comparative historical analysis um, is identified as a um, qualitative method. Strictly speaking, it can be qualitative or quantitative. The main, the main issue here is that um, differences and commonalities are explained through institutional arrangements and historical developments. 
and they focus on big questions, on revolutions. You know, that's Gospel's big work. On the development of welfare states, such as um, Paul Pearson's 1994 book. And um, here the argument always is, you know, we have institutional arrangements, different institutional arrangements um, can explain these macro-social differences. Um, very often we rely on so-called institutional equilibrium. So once you arrive at a certain kind of approach, there's an equilibrium. And we have path dependence and processes of increasing returns where, you know, once you are on this path, you continue to be on that path um, until you hit a critical juncture. And then, you know, the, the equilibrium um, collapses. It also highlights the argument of sequency matters. So it really depends on, you know, what comes first. So if you think of pensions, for example, once you have introduced an earnings-related pension, contribution-based, and have had that for a long time, it's much harder to reform that pension. In other words, you know, everyone who is familiar with, you know, Weber and others could argue, well, all this is basically saying is history matters. Yes, it might be the case, but I think uh, what they try to do is put it in a more systematic and comparative um, framework. Now, um, Sven Steino, I mentioned earlier, he now speaks about evolutionary narratives. And as all, and many of you probably know, Sven was one of those who pushed in the early 90s, pushed institutional, um, historical institutionalism together with um, Cathy Thielen, in a book, I think, published in 1992. Uh, he argues that, and I quote, from an evolutionary perspective, outcomes are rarely the product of discrete variables operating independently on one another in predictable and repeatable ways. Evolutionary theory assumes complex causation and is the study of complex adaptive systems. Different factors will matter in different cases. Gosh, yeah, sounds good, sounds good. Um, you know, common sense, yes, mm, from a historic perspective, very good. Uh, and then he also goes on that, you know, an evolution narrative um, would look at systems and would also include functional equivalents. Um, again, very interesting, but, you know, when you read the book, it's actually, again, one of those comparisons. It compares um, Sweden, Japan, and the U.S., right? And so the big argument here is, okay, in the U.S., people are different, believe in different things, inequality. In Japan, well, if we look at the welfare state, we, at the formal welfare state, we might not be looking at the right thing. We might have to look at the informal welfare state. And that in Sweden, um, you know, people are, you know, more solidaristic and... Um, Yes, it's really, really interesting. So we have three different cases. This kind of different approaches, so being more solidaristic or being much more individual um, or relying much more on individualism explains it. And Japan, you know, it's culturally different. That's why we have functional equivalence there. Gosh, but does it really? I mean, so is this, and I think that is what we have to reflect upon, is if we go down this approach, is it really about idiosyncrasies? Is it really every country, every nation state is different? Is that what he's saying? 
Um, I think the positive one is, the posit on the positive side is that this is kind of a holistic approach. It kind of looks at the whole system and not only at limited, you know, let's say at unemployment insurance and compares nominal unemployment insurance. Um, but surely it has limits. So, but as I said, um, and there's a long discussion about that, whether comparative historical analysis is really a method, it's an approach, and I think um, it probably is approach. The method that people use is process, process tracing or thick description. And Gehring uh, writes about process tracing. Process tracing is akin to detective work. The maid said this, the butler said that, and the suspect was seen at the scene of the, and so on forth. While other methods can be understood according to their quasi-experimental properties, process, tr process tracing invokes a more complex logic, one analogous to detective work, legal briefs, journalism, and traditional historical accounts. Obviously, process tracing allows only the inclusion of a very small number of cases and is therefore quite limited regarding any generalizations. And it's also the question of how good is your detective work? How good are you actually as a journalist or a detective or as a lawyer um, in furnishing those things? So um, the next issue that I want to raise or the next approach I want to go to is the qualitative comparative analysis. And this is basically an approach which was developed by Charles Reagan in the 1980s. And um, I really want to encourage all of you who have not read his 1987 book to really read it. It's, uh, for me, it's the, the book on the comparative method. Um, although my colleague Sophia Lee will argue um, life has moved on, um, it might just be that I'm still older. I think this is really the, the core of it. Uh, and he says, in short, the ideal synthetic strategy should integrate the best features, fe features of the case-oriented approach with the best features of the variable-oriented approach. This integration would allow investigators to address questions relevant to many cases in a way that does not contradict either the complexity of social causation or the variety of empirical social phenomena. The key to a proper synthetic strategy is the idea of qualitative comparative analysis, the notion of comparing wholes as configurations of parts. Gosh, this is grand, right? And I think he really ha is onto something here. Um, but how do we actually do it? QCA, as for short for qualitative comparative analysis, is based on Boolean algebra. Um, it has the advantage to capture complexity and multiple causality. And it's a very systematic way. So the basic features of the Boolean algebra use binary code, true and false, present and absent. And this is what I really like about um, QCA. It's, you know, it's either there it's not there. Either you're pregnant or not pregnant. It's really simple. Um, the typical Boolean-based comparative analysis addresses presence and absence of conditions under which a certain outcome is obtained, i.e. it's true. This applies to independent and dependent variables. All data must be transformed into binary data. These formal rules allow replicability. And this, I think, is really something important, which in much of the case-oriented analysis we don't have. Right? Where well, it's really hard so, um, to do. 
Now, what is the good practice here? I think for QCA, you need to make sure that you share enough, that you know, all cases share enough background characteristics. You know enough about them. You don't need to know every detail, but you need to know, um, you know the background characteristics. You should enclose both cases with positive and negative outcomes, right? Um, again, sufficient familiarity with each case is necessary. Uh, you should keep the number of conditions relatively low as a large number of conditions tends to individualize cases, right? So you come up with this basically idiosyncratic um, explanation. Uh, for each condition, formulate a clear hypothesis, right? So it's not just about, okay, I think we should do this or that, and you know, my, my experience tells me this, but based on research, based on previous analysis. And um, just to highlight that, there's a good kind of textbook out um, published in 2009 by a person um, uh, which is entitled Configuration Comparative Methods, which I think is really good as a first um, step. Now, how do, we, how do we go about it? So if we have done that, right? So we have, if we go back here, um, doesn't work the way I want it to. Nevertheless, so we, we basically have these, um, you know, applied all these um, different steps. Um, we present the data in a truth table. Truth tables have as many rows as there are logical possible combinations. For example, using four binary independent variables theoretically will lead to a truth table with 16 rows, one for each logical possible combination. And um, I'm showing you here one that I did with um, a study that I did with Timo Fleckenstein and was published in the British Journal of Industrial Relations uh, on the political economy of occupational family policy. So we were interested in seeing why companies develop family policies. And we looked at DAX and FTSE companies and so it com compared companies in Germany and in Britain. And we had the clear hypothesis, kind of um, the standard management kind of approach. Management agency leads to family policy. So it's the approach, you know, companies are not social kind of welfare institutions, but companies based on treatment are there to make profits. So only if management is interested would that family policy happen. The other one would be labor agency, right, taking more kind of a political conflict approach. So occupational family policy will only happen if you have strong labor unions within the corporation pushing for a certain change. Then we have the argument of female agency, which could be either, uh, could be kind of the diversity officer saying, um, you know, you really need to do this because it's good for your company. And then we took one hypothesis from the varieties of capitalism literature, um, the skill differentiation, um, our hypothesis was if you have general skills, if your company pre primarily relies on general skills, but these are high general skills, you want to lock in those workers because otherwise they could leave, right? Especially women, well-educated women with children. If you don't care for them, they will leave uh, and go to the company that has them. And basically what this shows then is the truth table of our analysis for Germany. And it's the last... 
column has the number of cases for each um, configuration that it applied to. Um, you don't have to do it, you know, there's a computer program that does basically, does it for you. Um, otherwise it would take ages. Um, but I think this is a really approach that might be helpful in a sense of helping us to combine really quantitative and qualitative analysis and increase the replicability of comparative research. Now, what to compare? Um, I think here it is really important to highlight that, you know, as I already mentioned before, um, comparative analysis of social policy encompasses a variety of methods and approaches. And, you know, one stream of um, analysis focuses on the macro level. It's comparing whole welfare regimes or systems, which is then kind of the narrative Stimo speaks about. The second stream of research encompasses social policy by limiting the unit of analysis to a few case studies or the investigation of specific social policies, such as social assistance or unemployment insurance or certain dimensions thereof. And I think from my own research that I've done in the past, comparative research, I think the one limiting you know, to certain kind of specific policies is to some extent the most dangerous in terms for stepping into a trap. Let me give you an example for that. When I was much younger, I started out comparing social assistance and unemployment insurance in post-war Japan and Germany. Uh, looked at the con Japanese constitution, looked at the German constitution, looked at the laws and legal systems. And what did I find? I found, you know, social assistance in Germany, social assistance in Japan, unemployment insurance. But I actually, I was not comparing the right things. Right? I was comparing a formal system, especially the Japanese one, which you know, might have unemployment insurance or social assistance on the tin. But there are real functional equivalents, or have been for a long time in Japan, for what we in Western Europe call unemployment insurance and social assistance. Other arrangements that really deal with them. And with my approach of limiting myself to, and that is what social, you know, very, we are, many of us do, what the OECD very often does, you know, we look at disability programs, so only where, you know, where it says on the tin, disability, do we believe this is disability programs, or, you know, we look at unemployment insurance, but we forget early retirement, which in some countries is the unemployment insurance for the long term. So this is, you know, I think it's really critical to be aware if we do that, we really uh, look beyond um, the nominal social policies. A third line of research is focused on the causal mechanisms, effects leading to the development of social policies as well as certain outcomes, such as poverty rates or unemployment across nations. Now, what I think, and here um, it is really important, I think, is the, the future of comparative analysis is the integration of micro and macro. And we have not done enough of that. In terms of micro, we very often have um, you know, perhaps single nation um, analysis, evaluation analysis. Some evaluation analysis is cross, you know, across a number of countries, but it usually is quite limited to single nations, uh, nation states. And then we have macro analysis of um, a number of states, but we look usually at, um, I'm not so even sure whether we actually look at social policy provision or 
the actual provision, or what we're looking at is what, in an ideal world, should be provided. So, you know, at the statutory arrangements. And if we compare statutory arrangements, I think we are looking at something really, 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 um, you know, almost, I would say, at a social construct of reality. And we believe, you know, if, for example, if you look at, and Manu will show that um, tomorrow, if you look at decommodification and regime, you can show how that is a kind of a social construct which does not necessarily link up to the micro level. But um, hopefully with this, I want to conclude kind of the first introductory part and open up for questions. Thank you.